Heather, and welcome to the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Corner Kirby. This is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and what spices to put in chai. So, I guess today I'd like to go back to a certain return of form in the sense that hopefully. This episode will be more of a variety episode than a sort of a deep dive. Uh, recently, I've like done a series of episodes where like I dive deep into one topic. Uh, I enjoyed doing this, but another thing I wanted to do with this podcast initially was sort of be able to talk quickly about different subjects because there's a lot of interesting like little things to talk about which don't necessarily merit, you know, at least a half hour of discussion, but are, you know, more interesting. And hopefully, you know, with variety episodes, people can find something to their liking. You know, if you don't like one topic, well, you can skip ahead uh, using the show notes, which have timestamps, which I, I'm going to digress a bit. I, I kind of don't enjoy doing the timestamps. It's always a bit of a chore, but I feel like they're very useful for people. So I, I do do them. It takes me like 10 minutes. I listen to the podcast and like fast forward <laughs> and then pick out like a, where I start talking about a topic because I don't like have a script or anything. I just have a like a list of things I want to talk about. That's it. And so I sort of look at that list and figure out where I started talking about it. So yeah, hopefully the, I'm going to try and like do variety episodes more often. Uh, we'll see. Depends on like what what stuff comes up that I want to talk about. If, you know, large subjects come up, we'll I'll talk about those. Anyhow, I guess the first thing uh, I want to talk about is a, a small quip I made today where I said that, uh, or rather I asked why you would use numeric citations in papers over alphabetical. So uh, in papers, you need to reference other people's papers, usually for results. Uh, you say you use a result from another paper, or like you want to repeat a claim, or etc. So you reference another people paper. So like the most bare bones way to do this is like you put the authors of the paper and like the name directly in the text. But this is sort of like cumbersome, especially if you reference a paper multiple times. Usually the way papers end up being referenced is that you put well, there's, there's several ways to do it. Basically, you have some kind of marker for the paper that you're referencing, and then at the end of your paper, you have the bibliography where, you know, each marker is associated with, like, the full paper. So you have, like, the year of the paper, the authors, the title, et cetera, et cetera, where it was published. And usually, like, your, your software does this for you. So, like, when you're using LaTeX, uh, you just put, like, a slash site, you know, Damgard 2010, or whatever the name of the paper you, you've chosen to call it is, and then it just inserts an entry in the bibliography and then a reference based on whatever preferences you have. And so like two common ways of doing this, at least in cryptography, is you, you have like a number. So the idea is like the first paper you reference is one, then it's two, etc. But then if I reference the first paper again somewhere later, it's it's one again. So it's like and then in the bibliography you have like the papers in the order that you cited them. And so you'd have like one is, you know, Damgard, blah blah blah, spuds, whatever. And number two is like, oh, uh, triples as a service, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
Uh, and then another way is instead of having numeric citations, you instead do sort of alphabetical. So like the usual way this works is that if you have multiple authors, say, you know, let's say, I'm trying to come up with names. Let's say Orlandi, Smart, and Vamcard. I'm reading a lot of MPC papers, so that's why this is this is the, the, the these are the examples that come up. So Vamgard, Orlandi, Smart, so that'd be like DOS, right? And then you put the year of the paper. So maybe DOS 20, if it's 2020. Uh thankfully cryptography isn't more than like hundred years old, so we're not running into problems here yet. But so you have like DOS 20, you know, GG18, etc. etc. CGGMP. 27, whatever, stuff like that. And so then usually the way the bibliography works is that it's sort of sorted alphabetically. So like you'd have AAB21 first, then AAC22, if that, that's a paper. Then at the bottom you have ZZX50, <laughs> whatever the, the, the year and the titles are. And so I guess basically I, I prefer alphabetical because, so I, I'm not like, I, I'm struggling to like steel man the numeric case. Well, one concern someone had was that, like, oh, if it's numeric, then, like, it's easier to look up. If you actually print out the paper, it's sort of easier to look up references, because, like, if I see reference number one and I flip to the bibliography, I know it's going to be at the top. If I see a reference, you know, 45, it's going to be, like, maybe in the middle or at the end, depending on how big the bibliography is. With the alphabetical, if you sort, like, the bibliography alphabetically, like, this isn't a problem. So I don't, like, really get this argument. And like the advantage of alphabetical is that like you have some kind of coherency between papers. So like one thing I've been running into, I've been like very different NPC papers for a thing. And like they're referencing the same paper, but when they use numeric citations, I have no idea that they're referencing it until like I actually, you know, move to the bibliography and see, oh yeah, paper number 22 is actually this, you know, paper. And so then when you're reading the paper, you have to keep this kind of mental map especially if like something is referenced multiple times, it, this becomes annoying because you need to keep a mental map between like the numbers and like the papers. Like in my head, I'm like, oh, you know, this paper introduced this technique. So it makes sense that they're like referencing it here. And like sometimes often uh, you're leaning a lot on the papers. You're like, okay, so we, you know, we make the following modifications to paper X. And then, you know, later you're like, okay, so you take, you know, section seven of paper X and do this. And if it's like number nine, you have to remember that number nine is like this paper. Whereas, for me, it's easier to associate it with like the acronym. For example, in like Threshold ECDSA, there's like GG18, GG20, CGGMP, and if you see this, like you kind of know which paper it is given like the specific niche it is. Like I know it's this, you know, specific signing paper. <laughs> so it's much easier to like cross-reference and like have a mental map of like papers and get situated. And this is like really useful when you're like comparing different papers together, which you sort of have to do if you're like you're trying to. I mean, why you need to compare papers together? I mean, that's that's I guess somewhat obvious that you need to do that if you're in a field. But like, the the main reasons are like usually you're trying to find a result and you're sort of dealing with literature and you often need to like parse the literature and figure out where like, where the result is or like whether or not something's possible. Like you're just kind of doing like survey work either for like actually writing a survey because you're nice or because like you're you're quote-unquote selfish sort of joking and you need to like a specific result so you're kind of like this is something that happens often with me like i need like a specific result or like i'm trying to figure out like what the best way to do something is after you know having done it a few years ago and you sort of like scavenge papers and you try to like salvage 
but it's also like you you're writing a paper of your own and you want to look at like techniques to do something so you try to like scavenge and you know, salvage pieces and bits of paper so it's often useful to have a few of them open pair them i guess this was a bit of a, a short topic because it's just me saying that alphabetical <laughs> they're just better <laughs> but uh you know variety episode right so i guess next more perhaps more meaty topic uh i want to talk a bit about why i think round complexity is kind of a not very useful notion in npc so first of all what am i talking about the npc i mean i guess i'm not even it's not even specific to npc so basically like if you take any sort of like protocol to compute some function regardless of whether or not it has like cryptographic merit like you could just you know maybe it's like a consensus protocol or something like that or like maybe i'm just you know adding numbers like i don't care about privacy at all like if you just have some protocol we have you know group of people on computers interacting setting messages until they arrive at a result um around complexity is sort of a way of measuring how long that takes because with just running a program yourself you have a lot of measures of complexity so usually like the most common measure is you look at sort of the asymptotic complexity of the running time so if i have a program i look at basically how long it takes to run a number of steps and then i see you know how does this grow as the input gets larger and i sort of relate these two things so if the input is has size 20 maybe it takes 40 steps and if it has you know size 40 maybe it only doubles so that's sort of a linear relationship but it could be like much worse maybe like if I have an input of size 20, it takes an exponential number of steps uh, to, to run. So that's sort of computational complexity. And measuring complexity becomes more complicated when you're sort of a, in this protocol environment because like you have a natural parallelism. Like maybe you split up your protocol into like two separate groups, which like do their compute and then do something together at the end. Well, then like most of the protocols sort of run in parallel because, you know, these two groups are doing stuff in parallel. So you need sort of other measures of complexity because one, one measure you could have is like you'd look at the total computation of everybody involved, but this is not going to correspond to like how long it actually takes to run the protocol. Because ultimately, like what you want in like a concrete situation is, well, how long will it take to run the protocol? That's like really sort of what you're interested in. Maybe that along with like what resources do I need? Uh, this isn't like a problem in practice so far, but like eventually, maybe you're doing like some, you know, federated machine learning or something like that. And it might actually become important, like what the overhead is in terms of memory usage, because this is often a bottleneck in machine learning systems is like, oh, how much can I fit on my GPU? So maybe you start asking, you know, what's how much space is used by this protocol? But anyhow, looking at the total computational complexity, like how much stuff each person runs isn't like useful because you're like, this natural parallelism and that people can compute at the same time. Also, this isn't necessarily going to translate into the actual running time because you also have, you need to communicate. And first of all, bandwidth isn't infinite. So if I need to say a lot of stuff to people, well, this is going to take a lot of time to just send for the wire. But even worse is that like, there's just this inherent latency and this you can't get around. Whatsoever. Like you can improve like the links and whatever to have like more, you know, better networking capacity, you know, move everybody to data centers where you have really powerful links and you can send like gig gigabits per second. But you still run into the fundamental problem that like 
you know, light needs to propagate between two places. So like you're always going to have latencies that are like, you know, at least in the dozens of milliseconds. And like if you're running, you know, computation between people on different continents, you have like at least 100 milliseconds or so of latency. And if I'm like running computation between people in America and New Zealand, I have like 200 milliseconds. I forget what it is. It's like 200, 300 milliseconds if you're doing sort of all the way across the globe. I could calculate that in the back of a napkin, but I'm very lazy. So anyhow, because of this, you sort of have to, if you want like a concrete measure of how long it's going to take, the answer is sort of it depends, because it depends a lot on like the specific uh, like protocol, what can be done in parallel versus not, and also, you know, what the topology of the network looks like. Like maybe have a protocol where it's like sort of lopsided and that some people communicate a lot with each other, but not with other people. And so if those people happen to be located close to each other physically, well, then this is going to be much faster. And so like all of these details make it so that it's difficult to like have one measure of complexity, which sums everything up. But one, I, th I think it's actually pretty reasonable uh, measure is sort of round complexity. And so the idea is like, imagine you have a protocol where it's, it's very structured in the sense that, but now let's assume that it's sort of symmetric because otherwise round complexity doesn't make sense. So by symmetric, I mean that like everybody does the same thing. So it's like, you know, everybody does this thing with their local state and they send some messages and then et cetera. So like the way this is structured is that, you know, at the start you have like some state which everybody initializes using their stuff, you know, with some randomness. Then they, you know, broadcast a message to everybody else. They wait to receive all the messages for that round. And then they do something else, maybe send another message to everybody else, and then you know wait to receive everything, etc. So we have like sort of this synchronous kind of organization where like at each round you do something, you send a message, you wait to receive everybody else's message, etc. And so like if you organize your thing in this way, it's sort of natural to think of it as like rounds. Uh, how you count this is, I'm actually not even sure if there's a standard for this. So like there's two ways to count it. If like let's say I have one broadcast. So like I, I do some computation, I broadcast, I wait to receive everything, then I do some other computation and return a result. So depending on how you see it, this is either one round or two. So one way to see it is like two rounds, because like there's like two places where you compute stuff. So I have a, you know one round and then I compute stuff. So you can see there's two round. You could also see it as like one round because it's like, well, there's only one time where I have to wait for other people. So it's like one round. Because then once I've waited, I just, you know, I could sort of, you know, immediately return without doing any computation because in some sense, like the result is already there, already there. So I think perhaps one round is better. I, I, I still out of habit call this two rounds. Um, what's interesting is that in this like two round case, it's often also called non-interactive in some sense, because like, essentially like the idea is like, if you had like a, a coordinator, which was just waiting for everybody's results, Everybody can compute this stuff, send the messages to the coordinator, and then he would just like be able to return the result, provided that there's no like private state that he needs to know, et cetera. But like it's sort of not interactive in some sense. So two plus rounds gives you an yeah. And so anyway, so use this convention that like the rounds is like the number of weight points plus one if like everything is always done through a weight point this way. And so first of all, like uh, round complexity kind of works well when you have this very synchronous thing, but I've been working on like a concrete protocol and in practice, like I've organized it into rounds, but 
in some sense, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. Because, for example, let's say in one round I send two messages, but they're kind of like independent of each other. So, like, I send one message, and then people need to do something with that message in the next round, and then I send another message, and people also need to do something with the message in the next round. Say, for example, like, each person needs to check that it's, you know, valid or whatever. Well, when they receive the first message, they can go ahead and check that it's valid without, like, waiting for the second message. So if we were to naively organize this into rounds, you'd, like, send both at the same time. Like, you do all your computation until, like, all the messages you want to send are ready. You'd send them all, and then you wait for all the messages. But, like, in practice, you're not going to do this. What you're going to do is, like, as soon as a message is ready, you want to send it immediately so that you can straddle your computation with like your network latency like as soon as a message is ready to send you want to send it so that like you can do other stuff or like it's you know floating around in the ether <laughs> and moving its way to other people and like basically i want to if i ever need to wait for a message i want to like do as much as possible before i need to wait for that message but in practice like you don't really have protocols organized into rounds you you have like these dependency weights so like i have a point where something is sent and then the point where like I have to wait for it because I can't do any more progress without like having this value. And so you could sort of, so these are sort of like dependencies in some sense. So like to, to do more computation, like this value is dependent on waiting and receiving this value. And so then like round complexity would be sort of like the maximum path, like the, the maximum sort of number of dependencies. So like maybe I need a value C, and for that, I need to receive B, which means I need to receive A. So this is like sort of three, uh, a complexity of three, if, if in the round terms, depending on how you count, three, two, four, you know, plus minus one. But, you know, the problem with like this naive approach is that like, it, it sort of like fails to look at how much, you know, work can be done in parallel because like maybe I have a lot of, I mean, obviously, there is utility in, like, having this sort of depth approach because it does give you sort of a maximum, like, a minimum bound. Because, like, if I need to, like, wait twice for a message to propagate, I know that I need to, like, at least wait the, number, the amount of time it just takes to, like, send a message to that person in some sense. Like, I'm always going to wait at least that long. The issue is that, like, often you can sort of you can like trade off com communication complexity for like computation in some sense, because like if I can do stuff while waiting for the communication, it, it like, it, it sort of alleviates the, the thing. Also like often like a naive analysis of round complexity doesn't look at the sort of like longest path kind of thing. Like it, it sort of doesn't exploit inherent parallelism that could exist. Uh, or the fact that like, you know, some if you're doing two sort of things you could sort of stagger them at the same time and perhaps exploit like the the fat, better stuff than than that in some sense i'm sort of rambling rambling a bit here because it's like uh it's it's a bit intricate if you if you look at it i guess the the main gripe i have is that like oh yeah also like <laughs> my thoughts have sort of developed a bit more in it but Initially, like a few months ago, my main grab with round complexity was that like it completely ignored like the efficiency of the protocol itself. So like, let's say like I reduce, I remove a round, but like I add a bunch of computation. Well, you can't really like compare the two protocols anymore because like one is going to be better in one situation where you have like 
ground complexity is like good to optimize for if you have really bad network conditions, right? So if I have really bad network conditions, then like a, adding a round is going to hurt me a lot. And I'd rather like have a lot of computation to avoid, you know, sending messages because computation is usually cheaper than latency. Like it's easier to buy a faster computer than it is to shrink the size of the earth, you know? Uh, so, but, and there's also like other weird things. Like, let's say I can, I have like more communication complexity for lower round complexity. Well then like, it may be faster if you have a faster link somehow. Cause usually like what ends up happening is that, is that when round complexity matters, you also sort of bandwidth constraint. So like often if like somebody's far away, that also usually limits the bandwidth you have available between the two links. These two things are usually correlated. Like it's rare to have like a really high bandwidth link between two points that are very far away. Usually when you have a high bandwidth link between two computers, it's like because they're like in the same data center or like, you know, relatively close to each other. Like as, as soon as you have a bunch of hops, it becomes difficult to get really good network speed for a lot of reasons. So like usually communication complexity and wrong complexity are sort of like not very trade-offable, unlike with computation complexity. Like it's generally like hard to get a protocol where in practice it's advantageous to reduce rounds by increasing communication. And often like yeah, this doesn't really like, well, yeah, I guess theoretically this can work. Yeah. Because like the reason it, it might work is like, well, I sort of send you like, to avoid an extra round, I send you like multiple possibilities. So that way, like no matter what, you know, choice you have, because like one way to, to structure a protocol is like, okay, I do one thing and then you give me an answer and then I do something based on that. But I also sort of like do one thing and then just give you all the possible answers that increases communication complexity potentially a lot, but then you don't need to ask me, you know, the next step. So, you know, theoretically it's possible. But then like my more sort of recent uh, criticism of round complexity is that it, it, in practice, like you want, in practice, what you want is like, how long does it actually take to compute? And so you need to look at like the staggering of both computation and communication. You need to look at the fact that actually you don't have rounds, what you have are dependencies. And like, you want to structure your protocol such that like, you defer waiting for values as much as possible. And you want to put as much compute as possible into these wait periods. So that like, anytime I'm computing, like while I'm waiting for something, it's basically free because I'm, I need to wait for it anyways. So I can just do any computation I want and it's not gonna cost extra time. So like basically you sort of always want like messages flying out as quickly as possible. So like basically you want, you want to send as early as possible and then you want to wait as late as possible. That way you sort of maximize the amount of stuff you're doing during dead periods essentially. I, I could like talk a bit about this more and I really should just write this down in like the protocol I'm working on. So yeah, that's ramblings about, you know, round complexity. <laughs> uh, I guess the, the final topic for today is going to be uh, talking about identifiable aborts again. So I talked about this, I think, forget whether or not it was like an entire episode or just like a topic, but I've talked about identifiable aborts before. And I mentioned them recently. So basically, the idea with identifiable aborts is also in the context of cryptographic protocols. The idea is like if you have enough malicious people, it's it's you can't really guarantee that the output is going to be delivered. You need to assume that like you know some people are honest. So what you can do is that you say, well, you know, if 
the you know malicious party causes the protocol to terminate early for example they send a bad value and i recognize and i say oh you know it's a bad value well you want it to be that the other parties can sort of agree that this happened and identify one person that caused it to, to fail so usually like this is sort of a natural thing to do because there are many protocols the way you achieve malicious security is like people sort of prove that they're doing stuff correctly so if a proof fails and it was sent by someone like you could just say okay well you know the protocol is going to abort and like we have no clue who did this but that's a bit silly because like you have a proof that is bad and was sent by a person so in theory you should be able to attribute blame and say oh you know this person caused the protocol to fail by sending this bad value uh i've, I've criticized this model in the past because i think it's sort of difficult to put into practice and if you look sort of a bit outside the formal threat model, you have a lot of sources of unidentifiable aborts which arise. But recently I've been, I've been revi revisiting this a bit, and I think there's like a potentially more useful notion, which has been explored a little bit, but not too much. And I'm not sure what a good name for it is, but the idea is sort of you want a publicly verifiable protocol. So here's sort of the idea. Let's say I have a, an MPC protocol where all communication goes through like a bulletin board. So each person, instead of sending a message directly to other people, you know, via broadcast, which has its own problems, they post it to a public bulletin board. Sort of, you have this primitive where you have this bulletin board where each person has their own board or column, depending on how you want to see it, and they can put messages on the board. And, you know, once a message is on the board, sort of everybody agrees that it's there and you can't like modify it and you can't, you know, you can't cause two people to see different, you know, messages at the same position or something like that. And so if you have this board abstraction, one interesting thing to do is that if it's a public bulletin board, I can sort of look after a protocol is finished, you know, maybe like I see, okay, person one put this on their bulletin board, they sent message, I sent, you know, I'm sending this message to everybody, I'm sending that message to everybody, and then maybe they put, oh, I'm aborting for, you know, XYZ reasons. And so the idea is like, instead of identifiable aborts as like a means, as like a property of a protocol, you instead move it to a property of like the bulletin board. So you say that like, there's a way to look at a bulletin board of an execution and figure out and attribute blame based on the bulletin board. And so this abstracts out one of the most pernicious details of identifiable aborts, which is the need for like consensus. And so like, basically you cheat by moving the consensus to the bulletin board abstraction. So like, you still need consensus in some sense, but the consensus is basically on the value of the bulletin board. So if you manage to get consensus on the bulletin board by the end of the protocol, well, then you, then just sort of looking at it, you should be able to tell like, whether or not something went wrong or not. And yeah. You, 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 and so, in essence, this, this abstracts away sort of the, the complexity of uh, identifiable, identifiable aborts in some sense. Because like my main gripes with it were the out of threat model things and like sort of the potential consensus issues, but these are sort of abstracted away into the bulletin board and that like, say to add a message to the board, you need to have it be signed. So this implicitly takes care of like receiving messages that are unsigned because you never receive messages from other people. You always look at the board and the idea is like each message on the board needs to be signed. So someone like tries and, 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 sends unsigned messages well you just completely ignore these because they're not on the bulletin board uh, how you implement the board is like a bit of a, a question but like one way to do it would be would, would be to use a blockchain uh 
So like, you know, each person has a has a section of the blockchain, and so like to add a message to the bulletin board, you append you know block to the ledger, and this you know implicitly leans on something else for consensus, but this might actually be you know very useful, because it let's let's say that like I'm using you know threshold signatures for like approving like I don't know like a, a transfer between two chains like I have like some kind of bridging mechanism. Well, so I naturally have like one chain I can already already use for like stuff. And like eventually the chain is going to need to sort of approve the signature anyways. So what I can do is like, oh, I use sort of the, not only do I post the final result of like the protocol, I also post the entire bulletin board. And that way people can agree by looking at the bulletin board that like a particular person acted badly and like slashed them or something like that. So I think the 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 bulletin board is a nice, you know, is a nice sort of compromise between identifiable boards and like the 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 sort of thorny realities of it because sort of all the difficulty gets encapsulated in how do I create this board abstraction. But then it it also it also simplifies all of the logic because often you need like this complicated detective protocol where like people need to communicate to like establish guilt. The issue with this is like in the detective protocol where like after an abort you need to figure out who did it. Well, because you have this complicated detective protocol, you might also have the ability to cause aborts which are identifiable in the detective protocol. And so then what do you like do another detective protocol? Like it, it becomes like you run into this like chicken and egg problem where like especially with regards to like broadcast, where you need to ensure that like one person can't send multiple messages. Can't with a broadcast primitive, you basically need to ensure that when someone broadcasts a message, it's actually the same message that gets sent to other people. And so if you run a detective protocol to figure out that a person actually cheated in doing this, well, you, you easily run into chicken and eggs where like people can start lying and like send different views of what they saw to other people. And the bulletin board like avoids all of this logic because like it, it gives you like a solid foundation to rest upon and you avoid like the need for detective protocols entirely because you just run a deterministic algorithm or even well you, you run a deterministic algorithm on the bulletin board and, and determine whether or not it was faulty or not a thought just came to me which is that you could also use a probabilistic algorithm to sort of reduce the computational cost of, of finding out whether or not someone cheated uh at the expense of some amount of soundness so maybe i have like you know a one in one hundred thousand percent chance of not finding out who did it, but I get a, a, you know, a speed up. I, I doubt that's going to work in practice, but it's got it's sort of interesting. Another thing you could sort of do is like you could sort of uh, you could snark the the bulletin board. So like I take the bulletin board and instead of like once it's there, I can sort of like compress it and say, oh, I know you know bulletin board, which you know these people agreed that they contributed to, such that you know it's valid. Yeah. You know? So that that could that could work too. But yeah, I need to flesh out this idea more. It sort of started mulling about it, you know, a few days ago. And I think I think it's interesting. Uh, I wonder, it, it's still missing a few elements for it to be sort of worthy of like a, a paper or something like that. You probably need a concrete example of like how you how you would do it in practice. Right now I'm working on a protocol for, for threshold ECD. So I mentioned that the other day. And I'm just not focusing on identifiable aborts at all. But I think if I were to add it as like a, an extension of the protocol or like, a, you know, a, another version of it, I'd focus more on this sort of bulletin board kind of idea over sort of the detective work.
that a lot of other protocols have gone for. So yeah, just some, just a few ideas today that I've been mulling around on. Hopefully this variety format is also interesting to people. As always, I'm you know, welcome to feedback uh, of any kind. But, you know, until the next episode, I wish you a good day and I thank you for listening. See you around.